Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Crowdsourcing Sustainability Podcast. Today, we are lucky enough to be with Nate Aiden. Nate leads the financial sector work at the Science-Based Targets Initiative, where he works with financial institutions, industry associations, and other stakeholders to help them set science-based targets for greenhouse gas emissions reductions. Nate is also a senior associate at the World Resources Institute's Business Center and their climate program. He has 15 years of experience working on industry, trade, energy, and climate in Asia, the U.S., and Europe. And he has authored or co-authored dozens of peer-reviewed journal articles and reports. So, Nate, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Yeah, of course. So today we're going to be talking about the Science-Based Targets Initiative's work, why it matters, your theory of change, how employees can get their orgs to sign up, and anything else useful for listeners to you know, help them transform their organizations. We're also going to dive into the financial sector specifically and how those companies can align their investing and lending practices with a 1.5 degrees Celsius world. Ultimately, I really want to help spread the word on all of this so more companies sign up with SBTI and make pledges and really you know, get the corporate sector to zero emissions ASAP. Uh, but as always, I would love to start with your climate story, Nate, before we dive into all of that. So when did you start caring about climate and could you kind of walk us through your thought process at the time? Sure. Thanks, Ryan. I've had sort of a circuitous path to my current um, involvement with climate and addressing climate. Uh, so um, I think I started caring when I was in undergrad uh, in college. Um, and while I was there, I um, decided to focus on studying um, Asia and Chinese um, as sort of trying to understand more about my upbringing and that I had lived in six years uh, in Singapore for six years. And while I was there, been um, sort of part of uh, a Chinese family while I was there. And so um, uh, I had friends who were focused on studying the science of climate and climate impacts in terms of glaciology and natural resources. But I didn't really know how I could connect with um, addressing climate challenges. And so I just pursued my own interests. And after I graduated, I ended up working on trade uh, and then moving to China and working there on food and food trade. I was interested in food and I had invested all this time in learning Chinese, uh, but it still wasn't really connecting. But then I sort of started to realize that there were resource and climate implications to the transformations that were happening in China at the time in terms of rising urbanization, disposable income levels, changing diets, changing resource use to feed people. Uh, and so after being there for three years, then I moved back to the U.S., went to grad school and shifted more into um, working on 
energy and climate modeling in China with the U.S. Department of Energy. And that was an exciting time to be working on China in the early 2000s because uh, the country was open. It was very optimistic. <clears throat> there was a very rapid growth happening and there was interest in um, learning from international experiences and <clears throat> sort of um, trying to take the best, best path forward uh, for the country and, and globally. Um, and so it was, um, it was great to, to be involved with that, but I decided that I wanted to broaden my energy and climate um, understanding and expertise. And so I went back for a PhD at Berkeley and then um, <clears throat> joined the World Resources Institute where initially I focused on the industrial sector in the U.S. and policy approaches to climate. Um, but then I gradually moved towards more private sector orientation. Uh, and so um, that's how I came to my current role with the Science-Based Targets Initiative. Very cool. And can you tell me more about the Science-Based Targets Initiative, just kind of like at a high level? So why was it created? And what is the theory of change behind it? Yeah. So the roots of the Science-Based Targets Initiative go back more than 20 years to the creation of the Greenhouse Gas Protocol, which WRI created with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. And that is now the preeminent way to measure a company or financial institution or city's greenhouse gas emissions. And... Um, when we created that, we did a large stakeholder engagement process with companies and policymakers and financial institutions uh, and developed these relationships. And so uh, in 2015, as the Paris Agreement was coming to fruition, many of those same stakeholders were coming to us and saying, you know, we're using the greenhouse gas protocol to measure our emissions, but now we want some additional guidance for aligning with this new Paris Agreement ambition of keeping temperature rise this century to well below two degrees with an aspiration to 1.5. Uh, and so we started thinking about this at WRI and we found that our counterparts at WWF and the UN and CDP were having similar conversations. And so we decided to collaborate on launching this science-based targets initiative in 2015. The basic purpose of the initiative is to support private sector climate mitigation ambition through transparent and quantitative emission reduction targets. Um, the theory of change is that a voluntary platform like this could help to catalyze broader action by transparently and quantitatively exemplifying leading best practice among companies when it comes to climate. Uh, and it's sort of um, a tipping point theory of change in the sense that it's voluntary and so 
once a critical mass of companies joins and, you know, people have different estimates of what that threshold is, depends on sort of the group and the dynamic. Um, but that, then it really pulls in the sort of mainstream companies. And it certainly sets a threshold for companies that are publicly claiming to take climate leadership. <clears throat> and it forces them to actually quantify and substantiate some of those claims. Awesome. Awesome. And can you tell me just where SBTI stands today? So like how many companies are signed up? I've seen some stats a while ago of how much of the economy was actually represented by these companies. Um, and then also where you expect to be in say like a year's time, like what are the trends of, uh, of your progress? Yeah. So we launched the initiative and the call to action back in 2015 and, um, there was already some interest that first year, uh, but it was sort of, you know, um, a trickle at first. And we've really seen exponential growth where now we have um, many dozens of submissions per month. And we've just surpassed 2000 companies and financial institutions with, with some um, commitments to set targets of which we're just approaching a thousand companies and financial institutions with targets that have met our criteria. So wow. this difference between 2000 and 1000 is sort of the crux of the initiative and in that it's a voluntary initiative. And what we do is we provide this platform for climate leadership. And we also assess the submissions that companies and financial institutions provide. And so that's the difference between the 2000 and 1000 is that the 1000 have met our criteria. So we basically have five high-level criteria that we use for assessing these targets. The first is that it covers all of the target settings, target setting entities, greenhouse gas emissions, both in terms of species of greenhouse gases, so not just carbon or methane, uh, but also in terms of their scope one and two emissions. So all of their direct combustion emissions, uh, but also their purchased electricity, heat, and steam-related emissions. <clears throat> so that's the first one. The second one is that it it's five to 15 years from the date of announcement. And the logic there was that uh, many companies and financial institutions were happy to talk about their 2050 you know, alignment or commitments, but that there was no accountability there and that there was no immediate action and that there really needs to be if we want to actually stabilize our climate. The third high level criteria is that the ambition of their target be at least well below two degrees. When we first launched, it was two degrees. Now we've brought that down to well below two degrees, and we're actually going to be ratcheting that up further to one and a half degrees starting next July um, in terms of that scope one and two target. The fourth criteria is the crux, and this is to say that they have to quantify their scope three emissions. So for the greenhouse gas protocol, we break emissions into three scopes. Scope one is from direct combustion of fossil fuels or process emissions. For example, if you're calcinating lime to make cement clinker. Uh, Scope two, as I mentioned, is purchased electricity, heat, and steam. Scope three is all the upstream and downstream emissions associated with this entity. And so um, before the SBT initiative, scope three was understood. We released our scope three standard about 10 years ago, but it was pretty consistently dismissed <clears throat> as double counting and uh, not something that companies or financial institutions could really influence. <clears throat> 
on the first point, of course, it is double counting. All emissions globally are scope one emissions. The point of scope two and scope three is to identify these relationships because we don't generally make emissions for their own sake. They're to make electricity or to provide some service that we are paying for or seeking. Uh, and so that's what these scope two and three categories do is to, to show the relationships here. And so the fourth criterion here says that the target setting entity needs to, first of all, quantify their scope three emissions. There are 15 categories of scope three emissions upstream and downstream. And then if the scope three emissions are greater than scope one, two, and three emissions, 40% of that, then they have to have a separate ambitious and measurable scope three target. And again, this was very novel and not a practice before 2015, before the Science-Based Targets Initiative required this. Uh, and this has really been, as I said, the crux with the various companies, financial institutions, and sectors that we deal with. And then the fifth and final high-level criteria is that the target-setting entity needs to publicly report its emissions inventory after they've had their target approved. And the logic here is just that sunshine is the best disinfectant, that this is a way for there to be some accountability uh, against their their commitment. And uh, <clears throat> these are sort of the, the key criteria. At this point, we have more than 20 criteria for companies. We have separate criteria for financial institutions that go into more detail. But this is the basic sort of structure of the initiative. And um, the growth, as I said, has just accelerated. And it's also become more ambitious over time. So the vast majority of targets now are all 1.5 degree in line targets. In the beginning, they were pretty much all two degree oriented targets uh, in terms of their ambition. The financial sector is really taking off now. Um, and that's something that there was some interest back in 2015 when we launched, but we held the financial institutions in abeyance until we had further developed the methods for them to set targets on their investment and lending portfolios. So it's uh, it's an exciting time. The initiative has become also a bit of a, a reference and sort of standard setting body for other peer initiatives and has become the global standard for private sector mitigation uh, ambition. That was super helpful. Thank you. Um, could you walk me through the process from a company's perspective or an employee's perspective who's like spearheading this process? So like, where do they start? How does it work? And I guess what happens after they actually set the target? Yeah. So companies have a range of rationale. It's a voluntary initiative. So, you know, um, no one's forcing them to do this. There are some regions where there's support for this. So for example, in Japan, um, they do have national targets for the number of companies they want to see with science-based targets. The That's Ministry cool. of Environment there sees this as sort of a way to future-proof their growth and to be sort of a light-touch climate policy. But um, they're not forced to do it there either. It's voluntary everywhere. Um, but uh, I'd say there's a, there's a range of sort of rationale for the companies to start this process for most companies or financial institutions, you know, it really comes down to the business case that there's got to be some rationale for them to invest time and resources in doing this. And so that can range from um, 
competitiveness of their particular entity in different climate scenarios. So for example, we had Mars uh, Chocolate Company as one of our early SBT companies. And in a four or six degree world, it's tough for them to be able to produce enough cocoa to make chocolate. And so, you know, for them, it's sort of an existential issue. Um, For, you know, other companies, it's value chain disruption, supply chain disruption, competitiveness issues. It really varies. Uh, For some, it's sort of regulatory hedging, or in some cases, compliance. Uh, So um, it's a range and we, we accept sort of all comers in terms of um, whatever their their rationale is. Um, what we focus on is just their target setting and making sure that it's consistent and robustly aligned with some kind of climate stabilization scenario. And so um, generally what the process entails is the target setting entity uh, submitting a commitment letter and that's something that we have on our website, sciencebasedtargets.org. Uh, they can download that, and it's pretty straightforward to submit that. It usually you know, needs to be signed by a, a C-suite um, staff member uh, who can represent the organization at that level. And <clears throat> then once they sign that, they have two years to follow through on their target submission process. And some companies or financial institutions wait the full two years. Uh, Some um, send it right away. Some actually don't even do the commitment letter. They just send us their target submission. Uh, It's a filled out form. Uh, And then once they have a target that's approved by us and has met their criteria, then they decide to publicly announce it. Again, we're sort of agnostic on what the company or financial institution process is here as long as they go through the target validation process. So uh, over the years, we've really sort of built this out and specialized it. Initially, it was just a group of five of us, and we would all just sort of discuss the targets and assess them quantitatively and make sure they made sense. Now we have a dedicated target validation team with staff from the four core organizations. uh, And when there are questions or disagreements, then this gets elevated to our technical working group uh, where we can help to resolve questions. And then we work with the target setting entity to communicate the target and then post it to our website once it's approved. Awesome. Uh, This is just rambling around in my head, but going back to reasons like for the business case of why companies would do this, I think another... um, you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but in my mind, a big one for strategy, especially long-term is just attracting and retaining talent, you know, especially Indeed, as that's a good point. younger, younger folks care about this more and more. And, you know, that's where the, the talent pool is coming from. Uh, yeah, you're right, Ryan. And, uh, you know, I mean, not only does it make staff feel good about their work, but it also helps to reassure them that their work will exist in 10 or 20 years uh, because there will be some huge transformations of the economy uh, and the companies and financial institutions that have science-based targets are more 
prepared for what's coming than the ones who don't. So it's both sort of um, the knowledge that you're doing the right thing, but it's also that you're well positioned for the future and you're more likely to be able to write it out. Yep. So, okay, the company goes through this process. They send in their targets. It gets validated. What happens after that? Are companies hitting these targets they're setting? Are there any short-term targets of just like the next year or few years? I know you said I know you said five to fifteen years at some point. Is there anything just an, on an annual basis, or how does that look like? It's a good question. So. From the beginning, we've required the target setting entities to publicly report their emissions inventory. And the idea was that the broader ecosystem would track this and help to assure that these companies, financial institutions were actually following up and achieving their targets. Um, It turned out that there wasn't sort of any entity that would track that. There were some sort of sector-focused advocacy groups or NGOs that would track for, for example, apparel footwear or other sectors where there's sort of more of that established framework and dynamic. Uh, But it hasn't happened the way that we anticipated. And so the Science-Based Targets Initiative is actually adding a monitoring, reporting, and verification function to what we do uh, to actually track target setting entities' performance after they set their science-based target to see if they're achieving it, if they're ahead or behind. We did publish a progress report last year um, just to look at our first five years uh, of, of work. And we found that the companies that had set targets between 2015 and 2019 had overall reduced their emissions by 25% and that this was equivalent to more than 300 million tons of uh, CO2 equivalent reductions by these companies. So, you know, it has a real impact. That's, you know, if if you try to sort of describe that broadly, it's, it's equivalent to about 80 coal fired power plants. Um, So, you know, that's, that's a real change. Um, We do, you know, recognize the need for more, tracking and more data. And so that's why we're adding this MRV function. I think um, as this group of SBT companies and financial institutions grows, there's a lot of potential for for really engaging this group, both for study in terms of how they compare with their peers. It's, it's a nice sort of one zero type of dynamic, um, but also um, seeing how they've achieved their targets and what other companies and parts of the economy can learn because these are really the leaders and that's part of our rationale with the whole initiative that this is a platform to identify and elevate the leading companies in different sectors and geographies globally that are really effectively reducing their emissions while continuing to thrive economically and this is sort of the dream you know that you can sort of continue to be competitive economically while significantly reducing your emissions in line with these climate stabilization scenarios. Yeah, that is awesome. And yeah, that's, that's 
very significant. 25% over the last four or five years, you said? Yeah. For uh, a rule of thumb, I, I feel like I've read for 1.5 degrees, just the, the world as a whole needs to reduce emissions by 7.5% a year, roughly. Is that kind? Is that generally what you're telling these companies as well, or is it slightly different? Where do you land on that? It's slightly different. So, <clears throat> in 2018, the IPCC published their special report on 1.5 degrees, and that included a broad ensemble of climate scenarios, with they which they simplified into four groups: P1 through P4, and those really vary from. Um, scenarios that are more focused on demand reductions and immediate fuel switching and energy efficiency to those that maintain the status quo a bit longer, but then really scale up BECs and um, more removal technologies in the second half of this century. And so what we did was to apply some filters to those scenarios to select a subset of them because there's no one 1.5 degree scenario. No one knows exactly what the economy will look like or how we'll get there, what technologies will be available in 10 years, much less 20 or 30. Uh, And so um, we published a paper in 2019 called Foundations of Science-Based Target Setting, where we explained how we use the IPCC special report 1.5 degree scenarios to come up with our methods and, for example, our rate is around 4.2% per year, uh, 4.5%, it, it varies, uh, but um, that um, is something that is often exceeded by many of our companies, actually, in terms of their actual achievements in reducing their emissions. Uh, but we've we've published a bunch of materials, and this is another one of the functions of the Science-Based Targets Initiative, is to take the global climate science and adjust it for company level target setting and company level interpretation. Uh, and so there are different ways of doing that. And we have different methods that we've developed. Some are more sector-based to look at available technologies, for example, for electricity generation versus steel production or cement production. And some are more just looking at the global climate system and how much we'd have to reduce if everyone just reduced in parallel at the same time. That's helpful. Um, And so you said it's 4.2 to 4.5% annual reductions is kind of the target you're throwing out there. Are companies, you said some are hitting it, some are beating it. What's like, do you have an average number uh, percent wise just for everyone who signed up? Is it Four, four point five. Do you have any idea? We've had so many sign up in the past year. I think we've roughly we've added several hundred in the past year. So uh, I I don't I wouldn't want to estimate because I haven't looked at the numbers. But as I said, it's getting more ambitious. Um, where you know when we first launched we allowed two degree targets. And then now next year, we're requiring 1.5 degree targets. So certainly that annual reduction number is going to be increasing, but I don't know where it is right now. 
Um, but this is something that we plan to add in the MRV function that we're bringing on to the initiative. Yeah, I'm really happy to hear you're bringing that on because that's, I feel like that would be incredibly useful, not only for the companies, but for everyone who's trying to follow along, pressure them, employees, you know, the, just that level of transparency will be super useful. Um, what are the biggest hurdles that companies are facing that you're seeing at least? And what advice do you have for them to overcome those hurdles? I know it's a very general question. It's going to be different for different industries probably, but whatever, whatever comes to mind. I think the primary hurdle is data and scope three. So um, most companies that have been around or even if they haven't been around that long, don't necessarily know the greenhouse gas impacts of all of their activities and investments. And so um, you can calculate that fairly easily for scope one and two by looking at your energy consumption. Or you know, if you're making cement or certain chemicals, you can calculate your process emissions by just understanding how much you're processing, how much clinker you're making, for example. But um, scope three is another can of worms where, you know, calculating the emissions from purchased goods and services, from employee commuting, from use of sold products, from processing of products, from financed emissions for your investments or lending can be quite daunting. And so that's, I'd say, the most consistent challenge that we find. Um, the next one after that would be, um, the lack of will or, uh, conclusive decision among the decision makers in companies or financial institutions to actually pull the trigger. So, uh, last year, you know, I, um, spent some of my time on, working with chemical sector and it's a large sector that's very emissions intensive and many of those companies know exactly how they can reduce their emissions especially their scope one and two emissions but it's sort of a wait and see game for a lot of these companies where they're not getting clear signals from policymakers they're looking at declining costs of these energy renewable energy or energy efficiency solutions. Uh, and so they are hedging uh, and considering different scenarios. And um, we help to encourage them to make the jump by showcasing the companies that are acting to sort of provide this, this peer learning dynamic. But in some sectors and geographies, there's just a need for some additional push and incentive as well. And so, um, you know, we're very conscious that we're just one part of a broader ecosystem and um, we provide resources and transparency and frameworks to advance private sector mitigation ambition, but it's not enough. Yeah. So, if someone out there is listening 
I guess specifically on the first point you made, how it's daunting to actually collect the data for scope three and just like get the picture of what is going on. What should they do? Like, where do you start with that? Yeah. So, um, WRI and WBCSD published the greenhouse gas protocol scope three standard about 10 years ago. And it was clear then as well that scope three data were a challenge. And so one of the resources that we published with the standard was uh, a scope three evaluator tool, which is freely available online and uses input output methods and expenditure data to start to estimate the different categories of scope three emissions. As I mentioned, there are 15 categories from purchase goods and services downstream to upstream categories of, uh, uh, of uh, use of sold. Sorry, you go from use of sold products all the way to financed emissions. But um, the basic sort of narrative there is that a lot of companies get caught up in the competition between best and the sort of viable. And so a lot of that has to do with using some initial estimates to just identify the hotspot areas where there can be a focus on gathering more data and improving data quality. But a lot of companies get stuck on just, we don't have the data, we can't figure this out, and it's impossible. And so that's part of the role of these resources is to get the ball rolling and say, we've got to start somewhere. We don't have perfect data on everything, but we need to act now. And so you can use these estimation resources as long as you're transparent and show exactly what you're doing, then <clears throat> this is a start. And this is going to be an iterative process. We'll improve the data over time. Uh, and so I'd say that scope three evaluator is a useful tool. We're also developing sector specific tools, for example, for chemical sector, which is very complex or apparel and footwear or electricity sector, uh, where there's uh, interesting key, key sort of variables and um, default values. And so we're also offering that for the financial sector as well. Awesome. And do you have any advice for employees specifically? Uh, I'm going to do twofold here. Advice on how they can get their company on board to sign up in the first place, you know, if, if there's some friction or just how to actually rally the troops to make this happen. And then also for any who are on board already, how, like what advice do you have to just accelerate the action that is happening? Like level up that ambition, actually, you know, rubber hits the road. How do we go as far and as fast as possible on getting to zero emissions. Yeah, thanks, Ryan, for the question. So in terms of getting on board, I'd say there are three things that employees can focus on. The first is just growing awareness and um, momentum within the company among the staff. So starting to talk, maybe organizing people into groups, whether it's a Slack channel or an email group or a weekly discussion group. Um, 
the second would be to start to um, harness that competitive angle that motivates a lot of people. So if you look on the Science-Based Targets Initiative website, sciencebasedtargets.org, you can find that list of 1,000 companies with approved targets, 2,000 companies, financial institutions that are committed, and find your peers. Find the companies that are in your sector or your geography and, you know, talk about them and see if that is uh, a meaningful angle within your company. And then the third is starting to actually engage with the leadership in the company and make a proposal. And I think the more informed the proposal, the better. So that would, you know, ideally include actually downloading the target submission forms and mapping it onto your company's reality to see what it would mean for your company to set a science-based target. And the initiative has a lot of resources to support that. And you can also email us at info at sciencebasedtargets.org to get additional support if you need it there. Um, In terms of accelerating ambition and action for companies that have set targets, it depends on the sector and geography, of course. Um, But generally, climate transformation takes a lot of investment in terms of staff, training, business model, or reorientation or revision, uh, and just investment in new assets. Uh, And so I think um, the financial sector plays a very important role here in terms of reallocating capital from fossil fuel and emissions intensive assets and sectors to more climate solution oriented investments. And so there is increasing interest in this um, where, you know, earlier today I had a call with International Finance Corporation. They're interested in, uh, they, they were telling me about the World Bank having a mandate to align all of their lending with the Paris Agreement by 2025. Uh, So financial institutions are moving here. They want to do this and they want to connect with the companies that are aligned. And so making that connection between the financial capital and the solutions providers is going to be essential to achieving this massive transformation that we're all looking for. I guess I'm just going to build on that since you started talking about the financial institutions. Could you Could you just take a step back and give us the 10,000 foot view of the role of this industry and kind of, you know, where they stand today versus where they need to be or get to? Yeah. So the financial sector is um, central to our current global economy and um, it touches everything. I mean, I think financialization has been one of the major trends of the past, let's say 50 years at least, of just financializing everything and increasing sophistication of financial products that are offered by um, these, these financial institutions that have grown extremely large and powerful. And, you know, we heard a lot about this with the 2008 
crash in the U.S. Um, with you know everyone wondering what's a credit default swap and you know what's actually going on here, what's actually being sold, uh, but then that sort of receded. And um, so the basic picture here is that financial institutions are aware that they will be affected by climate, that there's this impact of climate on financial institutions through increasing extreme weather events, rising sea levels, heat waves, et cetera, et cetera. And this affects the bottom line of these financial institutions. Um, So that relationship has been fairly well demonstrated and the financial sector has responded with new studies of risk and the TCFD, which is the task force for for financial related disclosures. Um, um, For climate financial relations disclosures. Um, So that has been established, but what's, what's sort of lagged is this other direction of the impact of the financial sector on climate and how financial institutions can can help to steer where we end up in terms of the stabilization of our climate. And so um, that's really what we're focused on in the Science-Based Targets Initiative. And um, the relationship is straightforward if you're looking at energy infrastructure, where Obviously, we need to shift from coal uh, to less emissions intensive energy sources. Um, But when you move beyond electricity generation and energy infrastructure, it gets complicated fairly quickly in terms of what exactly the role of the financial sector needs to be in moving our global economy to a 1.5 degree world. And so... um, when we published the scope three standard about 10 years ago, there were already questions and interest in how to more consistently and robustly quantify financed emissions as category 15 or scope three. And so we did a project um, with a couple technical partners to come up with some preliminary approaches to quantifying financed emissions. And for various reasons, Um, a group primarily of U.S. banks was vehemently against the uh, deployment of this method and standard. I think primarily because they were worried about being regulated against these finance emissions numbers that they didn't feel they could control. And so um, we stepped back from that uh, experience to focus on specific asset classes where there's a more tangible connection between the investment and lending activities of the financial institution and a climate outcome. So what we ended up focusing on for the Science-Based Targets Initiative financial sector work was residential mortgages, commercial real estate, where we have these clear physical intensity pathways in terms of the gram CO2 equivalent per square meter for these actual buildings uh, to help guide the alignment there. And then for electricity generation project finance, we have, again, clear pathways in terms of gram CO2 equivalent per kilowatt hour of electricity generated. Um, 
So that's relatively straightforward and sort of tangible link. And then for this broader group of corporate debt and equity, we added to those physical intensity methods to more engagement-oriented methods. And our thinking here is that actually the way that financial institutions can most effectively support climate stabilization right now is by engaging with their clients to help their clients reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And so um, the two methods that we've introduced are uh, first, what we call SBT portfolio coverage. So that's science-based targets. And the idea is that the financial institution engages with their clients or investees to have them set their own science-based target uh, with the SBT initiative. And our goal is that they do that in such a way that they're hitting 100% coverage so that their entire portfolio has science-based targets by 2040. The third method uh, is what we call SPT temperature rating. So it's just temperature rating, actually. And that is um, a bit broader engagement method where it doesn't have to be an SPT initiative approved science-based target. It's any quantitative emission reduction target by the company gets a temperature rating. And then this method aggregates those up among all of the clients or investees of the financial institution to the portfolio level to give a total temperature rating. And so what we've found is actually that um, we just had our first group of financial institutions with approved targets, and they've used all three of these methods for their target setting. Uh, so you know that's, that's some validation for us that these are actually usable for that financial institutions um, and um, can help to structure their, their target setting and ambition. In terms of sort of where the financial sector is going, I think it's a really exciting time because there's a lot of innovation happening with blockchain and decentralized finance and just the changing nature of the economy. And so there's a lot of potential for uh, innovation here that can catalyze these new technologies and trends in a way that can integrate climate more effectively with our financial system. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? What do you see on the horizon or that is here today, but sort of nascent that could really help these financial institutions to integrate uh, you know, more of a climate lens in their investments and lending portfolios? Yeah, thanks for the question, Ryan. So I'd say generally in our experience, the financial institutions are today where the companies were about five years ago in the sense that they're still trying to figure out the scope three data and figure out what a target means for them and start to socialize that within their institutions. Uh, and there's not really well-established best practices. We just, uh, a couple of weeks ago, had our first science-based targets published with financial institutions. That will certainly help to inform this, but it's very early days uh, for the financial sector. Um, but I think that, you know, generally, the three sort of trends I would point to are 
quantifying the scope three emissions. So the investment amending portfolio emissions of the financial institutions. And um, in addition to the science-based targets initiative, there's, uh, there's one that we work with called PCAF, which is an acronym for Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials, that is helping financial institutions to come up with these um, scope three inventories for their um, for their um, investment and lending portfolios. The second is target setting, uh, where um, you know it's just starting to happen. But um, they're using these methods. There are additional methods that we'll be reviewing for them to set targets. And the third is developing new products. They they can be sustainability linked loans. They can be um, blockchain products. They can be there's just a lot of things happening nowadays in terms of new innovations that link their investments with the climate outcome. And so, for example, you know we've heard of some companies getting preferential lending that's contingent on them achieving their science based target, where they get a lower rate on their loan if they hit their science-based target in a sort of demonstrable, robust way. Uh, yeah, so I think there's a lot happening, but those are the three areas that I'd focus on in terms of transparency, you know, inventory, data, uh, target setting, and new product development. And that new product development is especially nascent now. And um, it's especially exciting because, as I said, you have all of these new technologies and trends that are, um, really looking to potentially disrupt the financial sector. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, so I'm going to take a whack at, it's going to be very oversimplified, but kind of the, the gist of the financial institutions getting aligned and, you know, setting their targets and, and being aligned with Paris and 1.5. Is it, basically saying for the scope three that their investments and lending has to be going to places that are also aligned with 1.5 versus going to stuff that is is not aligned can it be said as as simply as that it's a really good question ryan because it's actually really complex and there's a big debate around this so um, it's, there are different ways to quantify and assess the alignment of financial institutions' portfolios with the Paris Agreement. And um, within the SBT initiative, as I said earlier, our sort of accounting foundation is the greenhouse gas protocol. And we've always focused on decarbonization targets. So we just, the target setting entity has a base year inventory, and then they need to reduce below that by a certain amount in order to be aligned. It's the idea that everyone has to reduce emissions. We have to reduce emissions in order to stabilize our climate. Um, For a financial institution, you know, as you can imagine, their scope one and two emissions are de minimis. It's like, you know, 1%. Uh, And so... um, it's really about that investment and lending portfolio. And then there's different ways of doing alignment. So there's a big movement, for example, among U.S. universities to move for divestment 
away from fossil fuels. And, you know, that I think has really helped to sort of catalyze action among some groups. And, um, you know, some people would say that it's increased the cost of capital for fossil fuel companies. Um, uh, but there is a big debate around the effectiveness of divestment <clears throat> within the financial community, the financial climate community, I'd say. Um, and so, you know, we in the SBT initiative were encouraged by some stakeholders to prohibit divestment with the idea that it's not effective and that if this, you know, enlightened financial institution divests, then another less enlightened one will just swoop in and, you know, supply that capital, and then you've got a worse outcome, sort of this leakage idea for a financial sector. Uh, you know, I don't know about that. Basically, the problem is there's no real, like, conclusive evidence either way. And the counterfactual was just untenable for us, that we couldn't force a financial institution to hold on to a fossil fuel or recalcitrant company that was unwilling to address the climate challenge because we think divestment is bad. So we don't prohibit divestment, but what we do is we think that engagement is the first best option where they actually work with their clients to help them reduce their emissions over time. Um, however, that's not you know always gonna be the most um, effective or straightforward way to do things. There has to be an option for divestment. So that's part of the debate. Um, there's also uh, different types of, financial products. So for example, insurance underwriting, which is much less direct than just offering a loan to a company uh, in terms of facilitated emissions being sort of an allocation challenge. And so um, it gets complicated quickly uh, within financial institutions. Then they have all these crazy derivative and other products that, you know, again, just uh, tracing the sort of causality and allocation uh, of these products can be difficult um, to do consistently. And so this is something that we're investing in and building out the resources and understanding. But at this point, it's still fairly early days. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd say it's an ongoing conversation. The way that it's changing, especially now with the COP26 that's happening next week in Glasgow uh, and just with developments globally is that net zero is becoming the sort of preeminent metric and idea for climate ambition for companies, financial institutions, countries, cities, other entities. And so um, the question there again is what does it actually mean from an emissions accounting perspective to be net zero? And so we're actually going to be uh, releasing our net zero foundations paper for financial institutions during COP. And um, this is a, a paper for public consultation where we're suggesting some initial ideas for net zero uh, definitions and principles for financial institutions. But um, essentially our approach is that emission reductions have to happen first before any removals or neutralization happens uh, and that we really have to reduce as much as possible, uh, at least aligned with 1.5 degree levels of stabilization and ambition. Um, so 
um, it's an ongoing conversation uh, is the answer to your question. And I think that it will certainly be a topic during COP uh, and something that continues to evolve. But I think that the participation of financial institutions in the science-based targets initiative and their setting of these relatively short-term targets with science-based targets initiative um, helps to get the ball rolling and start to sort of substantiate some of these broader concepts and claims. Yeah. Yeah. You're definitely navigating a tricky space. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, but it's also an essential one, you know, because everyone needs capital. Yeah. And all of these other companies that have science-based targets need to figure out how to finance them. So, you know, there's a lot of sort of potential um, positive feedback, but making that happen is is sometimes tricky. So uh, it's something that we're, the way that we do this is to have broad stakeholder engagement and have transparency and open source openness and everything we do um, just to sort of maintain legitimacy, but also to open this up to a broad community of stakeholders. So, you know, I think that's one thing that's exciting with your, your podcast and this, this group that you're convening is that, people can tap into this from various angles. You know, we're producing a lot of data that grad students or other researchers can use as new data set for, you know, exploring various hypotheses about decarbonization. Um, We're also, you know, producing a lot of information about case studies and ways that companies are actually doing this from a technical side, you know, that can help to inform people that work on the technical side, on advocacy side, um, there's opportunities to you know see who's doing what, and then engaging with this group of companies and financial institutions is also uh, an opportunity where part of our theory of change is that policymakers are affected by the growing critical mass of companies and financial institutions in their various countries or jurisdictions. That this sort of is proof of concept that not only can companies and financial institutions reduce their emissions without destroying their economy, but it's actually economically competitive and beneficial thing to do. And so this can sort of reassure them that, okay, yes, maybe I should consider that climate policy and not worry that it's only going to have detrimental impacts. Um, So we really see sort of um, multi-factor influences here. Yep. Big time. And yeah, for, for folks listening, I will be putting relevant links in the show notes. So if you want to find these studies, these uh, frameworks and take them, run with them, build on them, bring them out into the world, that'd be awesome. Um, before moving on, I just also, I'd like to throw my my two cents in there on the divesting efficacy. Because yeah, that was actually to hear it. one of the first things I ever wrote about. I think it was in the very first newsletter. And I've done, mm. you know, this was like almost four years ago now. Um, I mentioned, you know, how much had been divested, how many companies and on schools and all that. But I also brought up the historical point of a piece of the pie of how apartheid was ended in South Africa was the world mobilized and started divesting from them yeah 
Um, So I think there's historical precedent to say this kind of thing works. And Mm -hmm. I would also say that just looking at the straight numbers on this, if, if you divested from fossil fuels five or 10 years ago, you have way more money than people who did not do that. Indeed. You know, we usually call that stranded asset risk. Uh, and financial institutions are very sensitive to that, you know, going back to the financial sector discussion. Um, and I think that's part of their rationale for, for joining the initiative and engaging with this stuff is that they see the downside risk. I mean, I think just the one thing I would say there is that within SBT initiative, we differentiate between fossil exploration or production investment versus transformation investment. And, you know, if you look at the U.S., for example, we've got a lot of shale wells that are uncapped and just, you know, leaking methane into the atmosphere. And it costs money to cap those. And so just walking away is not the solution. We need to actually deal with these things. Uh, And as with many of these issues, the question is, who's going to pay for it and how is that going to work? So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it has a a big impact and I think it does help to mobilize a lot of people. um, But I think there also needs to be a lot of investment in these physical assets to to curtail them or permanently decommission them or transform them in a way that fits with the world that we want to live in. I think I have a few more questions for you. One is, you talked about net zero briefly, but I'd love to hear your your general thoughts on it because that's getting a lot of buzz recently, especially, you know, in relation to how much of it is greenwashing because I think there is a line there where, where you say you're net zero or you're going to be net zero and then you don't actually reduce emissions. Like you made a point that was the first and most important part Um, could you just elaborate on that and I guess take a step back so folks can also just, if, if they're not as familiar, just know like what net zero is and what greenwashing is. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ryan. So, uh, one of the concepts that emerged from the 2018 IPCC report was that we need to stop putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere in order for it to stabilize. And so just this week, there have been stories about how even though emissions were reduced last year, global concentrations of CO2 continue to rise. And people don't always understand that, you know, it's not reducing emissions doesn't mean that we're reducing the concentration. We're still putting things into the atmosphere and we need to stop putting stuff up there. And so that's the idea of net zero. Because it stays there generally. Yeah, it stays there for 100 years if it's CO2 on average. Uh, And so uh, we need to get to a state where we're not putting any more stuff up there on a net basis. And the net is this idea that we have, that the global climate system is dynamic and there are huge removals that happen where Uh, forests remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and the ocean absorbs a huge amount of greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. 
Uh, and so we need to get to a state where it's just net zero. There's, there's none because right now it's net huge positive, but we're just putting so much stuff into the atmosphere. And so, um, that 2018 report really put the concept in a very central position, uh, and a range of stakeholders have sort of run with it, uh, where what's happened is that the concept has moved well ahead of the accounting and the details and understanding of what it means. And so um, greenwashing is the idea that there's a claim to have an environmental benefit that isn't actually happening uh, and that is somehow being undermined or counteracted um, by the claimant usually. And so uh, in the case of net zero, there's interest from some stakeholders, whether they're companies or financial institutions or others, in maintaining the status quo uh, as long as they can in terms of their current emissions, but then just purchasing offsets, which are the idea that if I invest in a forestry project or um, a, a hydro project or some other you know, renewable energy project somewhere in the world, then that's somehow reducing emissions and therefore counteracts my emissions. And this is problematic uh, because A, that assumption that this is some kind of reduction assumes some counterfactual baseline, like, oh, it must have been coal otherwise, which is not how the world works. So just that basic idea of the additionality of these offsets is already questionable. And again, this comes back to the basic accounting foundations here, where the SBT initiative doesn't allow any offsets. It doesn't allow any avoided emissions, which is the idea that your product somehow takes emissions out of the atmosphere or counteracts something. Um, I mean, unless it's actual removals. Uh, and so um, what we require is just emission reductions over time. The challenge with net is that it's also true that in all of these scenarios, I mentioned there's a broad ensemble of scenarios in the SR 1.5 report, you need forestry, you need hydro, you need removals, whether it's um, from bioenergy or from direct air capture or CCS. Uh, and so that's clear. And it's clear that we need to send more resources towards these nature-based solutions and other programs. The issue is if we start counting it one for one and saying, oh, well, if you, you know, invest in this nature-based solution, then you can continue to emit, we're never going to stabilize our climate. It's just, we can't afford that. We need to reduce emissions first. And so um, that's sort of the context here. And the Science-Based Targets Initiative was fairly narrowly focused on decarbonization targets for our first five years, but then as net zero sort of exploded as the most popular sort of metric for ambition, we became compelled to enter the space and become sort of an arbiter of what is legitimate net zero and how do we avoid this greenwashing that you mentioned. And so uh, actually tomorrow, um, October 28th, we will be uh, launching our corporate net zero standard 
that stipulates what it means to be net zero for a company from a science-based targets perspective. And what it says is that they have to reduce their emissions first and foremost. Uh, and then where there are some residual emissions, which are estimated per sector and range from uh, around 10% in 2050 of remaining emissions for those really difficult to abate sectors, then there can be investment in removals associated with those residual emissions. Uh, and that's sort of the current understanding of net zero. That's it sort of our science-based targets initiative unit of analysis, which is either a company or financial institution. But then when you look at the systemic level, it gets complicated and political very quickly. And so the, the discussion uh, next week at COP uh, is around Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, which is about uh, tradable emissions um, uh, outcomes. They call them ITMOs. And uh, um, that, you know, is something that we tried in the Kyoto Protocol. We tried with the Clean Development Mechanism, and it wasn't really successful. It's essential in terms of transferring capital to um, less developed countries that that need that capital to be able to change their economic structure and support their people. Um, so it fulfills some really important roles, but in terms of the emissions accounting, it's tough to, um, to navigate all of this and to do it in a way where we can stay under our carbon budgets, which is about 500 gigatons remaining uh, if we want to stay within 1.5 degrees this, this century. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think that net zero is, is the big thing. It's going to be elevated by COP next week insofar as this COP has uh, framing around race to zero. And, for example, the Glasgow Financial uh, Alliance for Net Zero, GFANS, is obviously, you know, net zero focused. We've had, I think, $80 trillion worth of assets under management uh, commit to net zero. Um, so a lot of large financial institutions. Um, but again, that sort of rhetoric and sort of high level enthusiasm is well ahead of the specific targets and accounting frameworks to define what it means. Uh, and so it's certainly a high priority for the SBT initiative and for my work is to, um, as I said, start with just the foundations of net zero for financial institutions. And then next year we'll be developing a standard for net zero financial institution targets with this SBT initiative. So similar to what I described with companies before, where the financial sector work is sort of lagging the real economy corporate work. Um, we published the Net Zero Foundation's work for companies about a year ago now, and we're publishing that standard for companies tomorrow. We're publishing, you know, the first draft of the foundation's work for financial institutions in a couple of weeks at COP, uh, and then we'll do the standard next year. So it's a high priority. It's still fairly nascent, uh, and there isn't consensus around what it really means and how you navigate some of these challenges, for example, around fossil fuel divestment uh, and when you need to do that and how, et cetera, and how you define the fossil fuel sector. For example, pipeline companies or sort of multi-use companies, um, you know, who, who's in and who's out. So there's a lot of tricky aspects to it, but um, it's definitely a high priority area. And I think 
you know, if we can just capture this momentum and this enthusiasm for net zero and turn it into something that's substantive and robust and quantitative, then it'll be great. But at this point, it's still a little bit too early to say how effective and robust it will be for all of the different entities that are talking about net zero. Yeah. Well, thank you for that explanation and all the work that y'all are doing on that because um, it's much needed. I had one question pop into my head while you were talking, and then I just have two wrap-up questions. Um, so the one that popped into my head is, I'm sure you saw this, the IEA, International Energy Agency, mm-hmm. just in the past few months came out with a report that said, you know, the, the big takeaway was that we have to stop investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure, just kind of like, yeah, period. Um, if we're going to hit the targets that we want to hit. And I'm curious, does that factor into your um, framework or targets within the financial sector? Like, is there something in there that's like, you got to stop investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure because we just can't have this if we are going to meet the targets we want to meet? Yes. So this Net Zero Foundation's draft for public comment that I mentioned includes no new fossil investment provision, uh, which I think is fairly uncontroversial at this point, largely due to the IEA's inclusion in their May Net Zero Emissions 2050 uh, publication. Uh, But what tends to be more contested is removal of investment from existing resources and when you need to do that by and how you do that. Uh, and so, you know, I think the initial position that we're proposing, and there will be a broad, in my expectation, highly engaged stakeholder discussion around this is, uh, but what we're saying is, uh, that financial institutions that are net zero need to, um, end all of their coal investment by 2030 and all of their oil and gas investment by 2040 globally, uh, which is the most ambitious position that I've seen in terms of, again, investment in current assets, not new exploration. Uh, And as I said earlier, we distinguish between transition investment in, you know, carbon solutions and transformation and decommissioning of obsolete assets versus sort of maintaining the facility or growing capacity, et cetera. Uh, And so this is, again, one that, as with a lot of these issues, um, can look simple on a global level. But when you look at different geographies that are really dependent on fossil fuels, either for their energy system or for their economy. Uh, this is huge, you know, and it's really disruptive and challenging. And so that's one of the big challenges of this transformation and this work is keeping the human element first uh, and keeping in mind that we need to take care of people and each other uh, and not destroy people's livelihoods or societies uh, with these very rapid changes. And so, um, that's part of the consideration here, but, um, we are, you know, generally seeing 
increasing ambition here. And so we just want to funnel that in a way that's effective and constructive. All right. Two wrap up questions for you. The first is what book or books do you recommend or gift to people the most? Yeah. Well, related to climate, uh, I really like the ministry for the future from Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, I think it's just really um, thoughtful and engaging uh, and balanced. I mean, a lot of climate literature or news can be pretty depressing, um, but I find his work to be just really thoughtful and um, and um, it gives me a sense of, of hope and, and optimism. Uh, but one of my favorite authors is Neil Stevenson, and next month he's releasing a climate book supposedly called Termination Shock, so I'm, I'm excited for that. And I expect I'll be gifting both of those books. So those are two of my favorites. Very cool. And do you have any final call to action or just general message that you'd like to share with folks listening right now? I think um, if you're working with a company, that it would be great for you to look into science-based targets and think about um, whether and how your company can set a science-based target um, to align your company and your work with the climate stabilization that we all know um, uh, would be good for us now and we we need. Um, If you're a student, I think um, that the initiative is providing a lot of data and resources that can help to inform your studies, or certainly you can help to inform us in terms of um, what's working, what's not, uh, and how companies are leading the transition here. Um, so, you know, one thing that I didn't mention was, for example, we have a new open source Python tool that we introduced last year for temperature rating, and you know, big awesome to see someone take that and run with it and make something cool. I mean, it's just on GitHub. Anyone can download it and improve it. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for just a range of interactions. Um, I know, you know, going back to your first question, for me, I knew that climate was important, but I didn't really know what I could do about it or what my role was. And it took me years to sort of find my current position and role. And so just encourage people to, you know, just learn about what interests them and pursue what excites them. And, you know, eventually you'll find something that, um, that can inspire you and where you can hopefully have a positive impact. Love it. That is the perfect note to end on. Nate, thank you again so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate your time and, you know, just all the important work that you and the team are doing over at SBTI. Thanks, Ryan. It was a pleasure. Awesome. All right. Take care. Yep. Have a good one.